Another Premier League win for Mikel Arteta's Gunners. Arsenal run out 4-1 winners, exacting some revenge over Eddie Howe's Newcastle United. We're going to break it all down here on the Chronicles of Aguna podcast. Let's go, guys. To the left-hand side for Vieira. He'll play it through to Gabriel Jesus, who's in here for Arsenal. Gabriel Jesus to finish it off. Oh, what a way to do it! Gabriel Jesus seals the points for Arsenal. He's back, and he's back with a bang. Into the penalty area it goes. Gabriel Keller, and it's into the back of the net. Arsenal take an early lead through Gabriel. You're listening to the Chronicles of Aguna. The Daily Arsenal Podcast with me, Harry Simeon. Good morning, everybody. Happy Sunday and welcome back to another live edition of the Chronicles of Aguna, the Arsenal podcast, part of, of course, the 90 Min family. Hope you're all good. Hope you're all well. I'm still buzzing after what we witnessed last night at Emirates Stadium. Going into the game, I was a bit like eight o'clock kickoff on a Saturday. Not too sure about that, but I tell you what. The atmosphere was incredible. People had obviously uh, made the effort to get down to the area nice and early, went for a few drinks. Um, Arsenal put on kind of buy one, get one free beers at a certain point within the stadium as well. And I think that does have an impact on the atmosphere, right? People getting to the ground early, for one thing, is a, a game changer for me. And yeah, I wondered a little bit what the atmosphere would be like. And, you know, that's natural because we don't often play eight o'clock games. Uh, on a Saturday, but I thought it was fantastic. I thought it really, really was. And you kind of got that feeling, you got that sense that it was going to be a good night when you arrived in the area, I felt anyway. Um, so much to talk about. We're going to talk about some brilliant individual performances. We're going to talk Jorginho, who was a star again. We're going to talk Kai Havertz, who's really starting to deliver, isn't he? Uh, we're going to talk a little bit about our set pieces, which continue to be a problem for our opponents. We're also um, going to discuss uh, some really incredible statistics that have sort of come out off the back of this game. And um, and we're going to discuss how important and significant it was that Arsenal did turn up last night and bounce back after what was a really, really disappointing night in Porto. I think we can all agree. Let me say a few hellos uh, to those of you joining us in the live chat before we uh, dive right into it. Uh, big hello to uh, Terrell, who joins us. He says, uh, morning, Harry. What a result yesterday. Our press was crazy. It was indeed. Big hello to Steve uh, as well. We've got Junior who says, uh, good morning, uh, fellow Gooners. I trust we are all well. Harry, big up yourself, he says. Hope you're good, man. Uh, George says, I'm in the garden doing chores. and waiting for you to have something to listen to. Come on, Harry. Where are you? Oh, man. Garden chores are probably the worst type of chores, I would say. Not a gardener at all. Um, not a gardener at all. But um, yeah, it's got to be done, hasn't it? And I keep looking at mine and thinking, yeah, I probably should start getting it ready for when the weather gets better. Um, and every time I, I allocate a bit of time to do it, it pisses down with rain. But that's what happens when you live in London, right? Uh, Mario says, uh, what a great atmosphere last night. We played them off the park. Got to say, first half, we were unplayable. Uh, Tom says, uh, good morning, Harry and chat. Come on, you gunners. Another night, another opponent smashed. Absolutely. Maximus says, good morning, Harry. What a smashing evening. We've got um, Oisin joining us. Is that how you say it? Oisin, Oisin. Um, there's probably a, a much 
better pronunciation than what I've come out with. So please, um, I take my apology um, for that. I'm not very good at that stuff. Um, Trader IQ is with us. Russ is with us. Um, Undead Minion is with us. Coco Bolo. We've got Granddaddy Guna. Hope you're good, mate. Uh, M. Dot says, morning, Gunas. What a beautiful Sunday. It is a beautiful Sunday, isn't it? Uh, Junior says, Harry won't appear until you like and subscribe. If you could like the video and subscribe to the channel, that would be really, really helpful. Uh, Rob says, um, Harry is still celebrating in the in the uh, the press box. <laughs> I did. Um, I did enjoy uh, sort of watching it all unfold. I'll tell you what I really, really enjoyed. So we obviously went into this game feeling like we had a bit of a score to settle with Newcastle United. And around the time of the game earlier this season, I spoke to um, a gentleman from, from BBC Radio Newcastle. And let's just say we disagreed on sort of how that game might go in the build-up. Very respectfully, by the way, BBC Newcastle are great. They've got some great people there. Um, and I, I sort of saw uh, the, the gentleman that had come down to cover the game for them yesterday. And we were talking before the match and, and he sort of said, yeah, look, if I were you guys, you know, I'd, I'd have feel, felt really aggrieved with the goal that we kind of got given in the return fixture. And, you know, it was very controversial. And the game generally was was a very controversial one. And he said that he felt like a bit of a rivalry was kind of developing between the two sides. And I said, look, in the past, I've always quite liked Newcastle United. You know, we've had a mutual dislike for Manchester United. There's always been that kind of thing where you could come, where we could kind of, you know, we could kind of find common ground along that. And so, although, you know, he was he was great, and you know, he didn't sort of basically he was he was just brilliant. Like, and you know, sometimes like you want someone who's covering a rival club just to be a bit over the line, like a, a, a have a bit of needle so that you can give them something back, but then. They don't. And you're like, man, fair play. Like th That was the situation yesterday. But when we were walking into the to, to the press lounge at halftime, he was walking in front of me with his colleague and former cricketer Steve Harmison, who was covering the game as well, uh, was walking in front. And all three of them were just like, bloody hell, this Arsenal team are unplayable. They're unreal. You know, they're just they're just incredible. And. When you hear a rival fan say that, there's no better feeling in the world. Okay, I can say it, you can say it, and, and that's great too. But when you hear a rival fan say it, it really does kind of, yeah, it, it, it hits nicely, doesn't it? It's brilliant. Um, big thanks to uh, the brilliant James Green as well for having me on Sky Sports News before the game uh, as well. It was great fun. And a big shout out to Zavi Bird, the legend who I was covering the game with last night. Always a pleasure. And every time I have Zavi with me, we win big games. So um, I'm starting a campaign to get him in alongside me for every Arsenal game. Got to work out how I'm going to get him to Manchester City come the end of March. But anyway, um, let's get into the game itself. Uh, lots and lots to get into, lots and lots to discuss. Feel free to chip in via the comments section throughout and I'll pick up as many of those as I possibly can. But let's start off with the team that Mikel Arteta selected. Going into this game, I think a lot of people felt that we were a little bit leggy, that the performance at Porto was partly down to the fact that we just weren't at our best, partly down to the fact that Porto shithoused their way through it, but also partly down to the fact that maybe 
the lack of changes in recent weeks and the fact that the squad was looking really thin in a number of areas, almost forcing Mikel Arteta to stick with the same 11. People started to feel, I think, that there was a bit of tiredness and a bit of fatigue creeping in. We dispelled that myth completely yesterday because Mikel Arteta made just the one change. Leandro Trossard dropped out of the starting 11 and in came Jorginho. Now, I think it was incredibly harsh on Jorginho for him to have to be the one to make way because I think in recent weeks he's been really, really impressive playing that false nine role. He's worked really, really collaboratively with Kai Havertz in terms of the two of them switching positions at times and all the rest of it. But tactically, it was the decision that made sense. If you had to take one of Havertz or Trossard out against this Newcastle side, given what we know about them and given the way that they've approached games against us in recent times, taking Trossard out and putting Havertz up front with Jorginho in the midfield and almost reverting back to the Liverpool formula was the right way to go. And so it proved. So Trossard really unlucky not to be in the starting eleven, but I think Mikel made the right decision. Apart from that, there's not a great deal else he could have done with the team. I remember sort of speaking to my dad on the way to the game and saying, and he was saying, you know, maybe we need to freshen it up a little bit today. And I said, other than bringing Jorginho in, I can't really see how we do that. The options are still so limited. A real big positive yesterday was that Gabriel Jesus was back on the bench. But the fact that we were in such a comfortable position and Mikel Arteta didn't bring him on to give him some minutes tells me that he was probably slightly short in terms of where he needed to be. And it was more a kind of, let's try and give the squad a boost by having him on the bench and let's have him there in a, a worst possible case scenario. Let's have him there as a kind of emergency option. And, and if we can avoid using him and we can give him that little bit of extra time to recover and build his strength up, then let's do that. And that's how it turned out. Thankfully, the game was in a state where we didn't need to pull on Gabriel Jesus and we could take that decision to leave him out. But the way Arsenal started this game, was truly incredible. In the build-up, I'd said, we're going to face a low block. We're going to face a side that are going to come here to try and frustrate us. That's what we've become accustomed to when facing Eddie Howe's Newcastle United. And it felt like, you know, that was going to be the case from the first few minutes. Newcastle's defensive line was really deep. They were clearly worried about the spaces uh, that Arsenal liked to attack in behind. They were worried about the pace of Bukayo Saka. They were worried about the pace of Gabriel Martinelli and his ability to stretch people um, and, you know, the game could have quite easily gone from ferocious, fast-paced start, which Arsenal always want to provide when they're playing at home, to lots of sideways passes and the tempo really, really dropping. It didn't happen, though. And the reason it didn't happen was not because of anything that Newcastle did, was not because of any reason other than Arsenal just being bang on it from the off. Now, I spoke to Mikel Arteta after the game and I asked him um I asked him if he in the dressing room before the game could feel an extra little bit of edge from his players based on what had happened up at St James's Park back in I think it was November and he said no I think it was more down to the fact that we'd gone to Porto you know we lost the game and and we knew the eyes were going to be on us with regards to how we would respond today and I kind of don't believe him. <laughs> I kind of don't believe um, that he he didn't feel that or, or didn't see that. And I don't believe that that wasn't used as a kind of, 
galvanizing tool from Mikel Arteta. It wasn't used as something to kind of fire up his players with. And I think Martin Odegaard went on TV and said, yeah, you know, we did have uh, a little bit of a score to settle. Um, I'm paraphrasing, of course, but he did kind of make that point. And so, yeah, I think I was right not to fully believe Mikel Arteta when he was saying that. He made a lot of effort in the build-up to this game to kind of play all of that stuff down. Probably more from fear of picking up an FA charge than anything else. But you can bet your bottom dollar that behind the scenes and in the changing room and in the build-up to this game, in the training session, and when they were briefing the players, he'd have been bang on about this. Bang on about this. I know this doesn't really matter now because we we won the game and, and we were brilliant and it was no competition in the end. But I was getting a bit irritated by Eddie Howe and Jason Tindall in the first half especially. Isn't there a rule in place now? And correct me if I'm wrong. Isn't there a rule in place that says only one member of staff can be standing in the technical area at any given time? Well, Tindall was in the technical area to the left of Eddie Howe for the entire first half. And at no point was that ever pulled up. Now, I guess it's one of those things that if you don't cause trouble, it doesn't draw people's attention to it naturally. But because it was right in front of me from my position, I could see it and it was getting on my nerves. Tyndall irritates me more than Eddie Howe does. I actually thought, because I was present in in the interview that Eddie Howe gave on the radio, um, I actually thought Eddie Howe spoke quite well after the game. He was quite complimentary of Arsenal. Um, he, he was clearly disappointed with the way his team performed. Um, he said he knew that the set pieces were coming, but they didn't defend them well enough. He knew what Arsenal would look to do. But Arsenal's level on the day was just so bloody high. Like, I don't think there was anything that anybody could have done about it. The intensity with which we play, pay, uh, played, the tempo with, with which we played, the pace with, with which we did things, the accuracy with which we did things, made us impossible to live with. Somebody asked me how I would describe Arsenal's first half performance last night at halftime. And the first thing that came to my head was, imagine releasing an angry swarm of bees on a group of people. That is what Arsenal's performance reminded me of last night. The fact that they just came out 100 miles an hour, they were buzzing around people. Everywhere you turned, there was a red and white shirt. Everywhere you tried to look, there was red and white shirts. Every loose ball, there was a swarm of red and white shirts around it first. And we can talk about all the technical stuff. And there were loads of brilliant technical pieces of skill, passes, moments, etc., etc. But for me, that was the key. Because we know we've got all the technical capabilities. We know we've got skillful players. We've got the likes of Martin Odegaard. We've got brilliant technicians and, and puppet masters like Jorginho. We, we've got all of that stuff. But sometimes the way that you kind of make sure that that stuff comes through is by making sure that you're also at a higher level when it comes to all the other elements, the physicality, the intensity, the strength, the pace, all the rest of it. That, for me, was the key to Arsenal's first half dominance. Yes, they were brilliant on the ball, but the way they were buzzing around Newcastle United off it. We had them pinned back in the first half for long, long periods. They'd try and clear it. You'd put the ball into the box, there'd be a defensive clearance. It would never go as far as the edge of the penalty area because, or, or any further, I beg your pardon, than the edge of the penalty area because whoever was making the clearance had pressure applied to them. And when the ball then would drop around the edge of the box, it was an Arsenal man 
that would get there first. It was an Arsenal man that would be the stronger one, the quicker one, the sharper one. And I just think that when you consider people have been talking about how maybe we were looking a little bit leggy at Porto and how maybe the lack of changes in recent weeks was catching up with us. To then only make one change, but then deliver that level of physical performance two, three days after you've played an away game in Europe, I think is remarkable and deserves immense praise and immense credit. I talked about set pieces. I touched on them a little bit earlier on. We're gonna, I'm going to run through each of the goals now. Obviously, I can't show you the goals, which is incredibly frustrating because of the copyright rules and all the rest of it. Um, but I'll probably be able to show you um, some sort of uh, some screenshots at least, which might help and aid me uh, in my explanation um, uh, of some of these goals. Because I think there's a few uh, key pickouts that I really want to kind of uh, focus on. Let me just um, make sure that that is coming through. So I think you can see that you should be able to. I'm just going to hide it while I run through the goal and then I'll show you the screenshots that I need to because, of course, copyright prevents me from um, showing you guys the goals. But if we start, I've pressed the button, the wrong button. If I start with the first goal, which obviously came from a Bukayo Saka corner, if you look at it here, you know, you can see Arsenal started with everybody. Can I take this back a second? Let me let me take this back a second. I know I can't show you. It's so annoying, like, having to try and juggle this. Hold on a sec. Because I don't want to get the video struck off for copyright. But if you see... Here, so this is just before Bukayo Saka delivers the ball into the box. Take a look at the far post. There are a group of players at the back post, as we've seen Arsenal sort of do regularly now. You know, we've seen Kai Havertz go into that position because obviously he's a very big physical guy. We see the centre-backs uh, taking up those positions as well. Then we seem to use Ben White as the guy that's there to make the goalkeeper's life um, difficult. And... Um, and and if I take it on a, a little bit further, you see how this kind this situation develops. So the ball comes in from Saka and everybody makes a dash towards the near post. And the reason they all make a dash towards the near post and the reason that they start in the position that they do is because it's it's in that chaos. It's in that that moment where you're darting across, where people are getting in the crossfire of one another, that you can lose a man and that you can block an opposition player from getting to a clearance. If you're all in a static position and you're all standing at the far post and the delivery comes in and it's a case of who's going to win from a standing jump, the likelihood of you getting free of your man is not very high. The way you get free of people is to have movement. The movement across the face of the goal is, is really important because that has the potential to cause chaos. As we saw on a couple of occasions yesterday, the fact that you're taking all your bodies across the goal. And that means that all the opposition players are then following you across the goal, can lead to deflections, can lead to ricochets. And essentially, it causes absolute carnage in the opposition's six-yard box. And we saw that here. But as I say, that the fact that we make that group movement from the back post to the far post, it just creates all sorts of chaos. And, and in that chaos, there will be people being blocked off. There will be people unable to follow their runner because somebody else has made the run across their path. All of this is really well calculated and, and you know, well orchestrated by, of course, Nicholas Yova, who I tweeted last night, should have a statue by now. And it was Gabrielle's header 
at the near post. To be fair to Loris Carrius for the first goal, he makes a pretty good save. Um, and he's really, really unlucky with the fact that it ends up coming off of Sven Botman's knee and going over the goal line, just about over the goal line. But look, there was no doubt about that one, was there? There wasn't any talk about the trajectory uh, the trajectory, I beg your pardon, the, the overhang of the ball or the shadow of the ball. We didn't see any of that chat, did we? This one was clearly over the line and Arsenal broke the deadlock through a set piece. Now, Arsenal have been playing really, really well up until that point, but it shows you again the difference that we can make from set pieces because, you know, in the past, we've relied on playing this brilliant football, which a lot of the time has worked, but at times has been a struggle. It hasn't always clicked. And the first goal in a goal in a game against a side like Newcastle, who are going to apply a low block against you and whose main aim, I would say, is to frustrate you. The importance of the first goal is huge. And to be able to have that in your locker now, because in these games where you're facing a low block, you often win corners. You often win throw-ins. You often win free kicks in wide areas. You need to be able to maximise them. And Arsenal have done a great, great job of late of doing that. Nicolas Jova, he deserves a pay rise. And he deserves a statue outside the Emirates if he, if this goes on to take us uh, to a major trophy. But um, we'll get another look at it in a second. Paul Tierney uh, felt the thing on his watch and he knew that the goal, the ball had crossed the line. And you look at it here, it's just a complete mix-up at the back, really, from the Newcastle United players. You can see it there. Um, the ball's bouncing around all over the place. By the time Carrius gets himself up. It's come off another defender and ricocheted off of Botman, who's down on the ground. Could Botman have done better? I think if you're being super critical, maybe. Um, but I think he's he's quite unlucky there. It's just one of those things where if you create chaos, if you create carnage enough, things will happen. I think it was um, Liveramento who tried to um, who tried to uh, hook it clear and ended up kicking it off Botman. And here's a, a screenshot of uh, of the goal decision system just indicating that the ball was well over the line. No chat about overhang there, uh, as I've said. If we take it on to the second goal, I think this was my favourite one in terms of uh, the team goals. And there's a few phases to this. So you can see Saliba here playing the ball into Jorginho. Odegaard is in that kind of half space on the right-hand side. Bukayo Saka is wider of him, so he's keeping the width there. Kai Havertz has placed himself in between a couple of the Newcastle centre-backs. He's occupying them. You can see that because of Jorginho's position, but also because of Gabriel's position, Kivio's position and Saliba's position, we've created that kind of safety net for Declan Rice to step that bit further forward. And that was what was different for me yesterday um, in comparison to the Liverpool game. Instead of having Declan Rice be the one that sat all the time, we often allowed Jorginho to be that guy. Um, at times, we decided because of how defensive they were, we didn't need that guy and that Rice and Jorginho could both push on and that if the, the three defenders um, who are not tasked with inverting, and I'm talking about Saliba, Gabriel and Kivior in this case, if they could kind of create this sort of safety triangle, if you like, that's what I'm going to call it, then Arsenal could push both Jorginho and Rice forward and be aggressive. And Arteta talked about the team's bravery um, in terms of the way they went after the game uh, post-match. Have a look at this here now, right? So these there's some really, really clever runs here. And this is what makes the goal. If you take a look, take a peek at where... Um, if you take a peek at where Ben White is, look at Ben White. It's like he's trying to run off the back of the, the, the fullback. He's making 
a wingers run essentially there, Ben White. Martinelli has decided and sensed that there is something in this for him. And he's come in off that left-hand side and he's pulled Kieran Trippier away with him as well. Which again, really, really impressive. If I take it on a little bit further, and again, apologies, I can't show you the actual goals. Then the ball gets clipped over the top brilliantly uh, by Jorginho. This is the pass of the match, by the way. Martinelli is going to get in behind the defender there. Ben White is up there alongside him, which causes the defender a bit of anxiety because he's looking at it and he's aware, I'm sure, of the fact that Martinelli's breathing down his neck, but he's also wary of where Ben White is. The fullback has come inside, you can see, to try and help out and to track Ben White. But on the outside of him, you've got Bukayo Saka as well, which means that Arsenal have an option there. And just keep your eyes now on Kai Havertz because... This is the, the key to this goal, in my opinion. When Martinelli takes this down, okay, when he brings this down on his knee or whatever, and he realises that he's been taken away from goal, and he's obviously thinking now about how he can cut this ball back. The key here is Kai Havertz's movement. Look at Kai Havertz, right? An, an, a normal striker or a normal player, without that intelligence, without that awareness of the fact that he needs to shake the defender off, would make a straight line run in towards the edge of the six-yard box. But what happens if you do that, if you make the straight yard, uh, straight line run? The chances are that you're going to get blocked off because there's a defender a few yards away from Kai Havertz. You'll just see him just above him in the picture. And that player's first instinct is going to be, shit, they've worked the ball out wide. There's clearly going to be a cutback. I need to. I need to block that space. I need to deal with that space. Therefore, closing the door on Kai Havertz. So what does Kai Havertz do? I'll take the picture a little bit further. Instead of making that straight run and instead of drifting into that position, Ben White's already there uh, for one thing, but Kai Havertz realises the defender's coming across him like that and decides, you know what? I'm going to ghost in around the back of you. That's what he does. Look at the movement from Kai Havertz here. He takes a step in an alternative direction, which means that that guy now has been taken out of the game. It means that, yeah, that guy can step into that position and potentially clear the ball. I think it's Fabian Cher, by the way. But the fact that Kai Havertz has stepped to the left now means that Kai Havertz has the opportunity to ghost in around the back of him. And we talk loads and loads and loads about Kai Havertz's movement and how effective it is. And we talked a lot earlier in the season about this idea of him ghosting in at the far post in situations. And that's partly what he was brought in to do. He's applied that same principle here. Rather than making the straight line run and putting himself in a duel with Fabian Cher, who I think it is there, instead, he ghosts in around the back of him. And if I take it slightly further forward, when the ball's cut back, that player gets sucked in uh, to Ben White, whose presence is a problem for Newcastle United. And Kai Havertz now has that bit of space to ghost into. He now only has to get there ahead of one defender because Ben White's movement and the fact that the centre-half was completely unaware of, of Kai Havertz's change of direction at the last minute has meant that Havertz has the momentum and the cutback from Martinelli is superb. And then Kai Havertz, of course, uh, goes on to finish it. And Arsenal are two goals to the good. The movement there should not be undervalued. I know in the past, people have said to me, oh man, you always overplay everything that Kai Havertz does to try and make him seem like a better signing. I don't need to anymore. 
I don't need to anymore because he's turning up week after week and he's putting in performances. And I, at this stage, would say, and this might be a controversial take, but I would say right now that if you said to me in certain games, would I pick Kai Havertz ahead of Gabriel Jesus up front? I probably would because I think there are games where he is more suited. I think there are games where his physical presence gives us the ability to go a little bit more direct. And although Jesus is the type of player that will leave his position, go and collect the ball, go and get on the ball, uh, buzzes around people a little bit more, probably a better provider in that sense. I think there's something about Kai Havertz's intelligence in his movement that makes him a, a different proposition. And then you add the physical stuff to that as well. And he gives you a really, really good option. And I'll tell you what, listening to Edu speak before the game last night where he said, you know, about the centre-forward chat, and he said, you know, I'd be worried if we weren't scoring goals and we weren't creating chances. I think in the last few weeks, I really do. I think Arsenal have looked at Kai Havertz in this position and gone, you know what, we've got an option here. Now, I'm not saying they shouldn't sign a centre-forward before you will start going crazy at me. And I'm not saying they won't sign um, a centre-forward. But to have this flexibility, to have this option, you know, people say that we're we're really kind of poor in that centre-forward position, that we're really lacking. In recent weeks, Kai Havertz has stepped up in that position and done brilliantly. Leandro Trossard has stepped up in that position and done brilliantly. Gabriel Jesus is still to return. Actually, can we cry poverty when it comes to the centre-forward position? I don't think we can. We're scoring a remarkable amount of goals. And the, the flexibility and versatility of these players is what's making them so difficult to read and pick up uh, by opposition, um, opposition defenders. I, I thought this was a brilliant goal because of every every element of it. I thought that Jorginho's clip over the top for Martinelli was fantastic. Martinelli realising that he's going away from goal and just wanting to work the ball into the right space is a sign of him maybe becoming a little bit more mature. And Kai Havertz recognising where he needs to be, but also the most efficient route of getting where he needs to be and the route that will allow him to shake off the most defensive attention, that's intelligence. To think of that in the moment and to change your direction on a couple of occasions, to throw off those defenders who are tasked with preventing you getting to the ball is the key to this goal. And it's a good finish in the end. It's, it's a relatively simple one, of course, but he still has to take the opportunity, doesn't he? My only frustration with Kai Havertz yesterday was that he didn't score a second because he had a glorious opportunity at 2-0 to put the game to bed. And maybe we'll look at that. Uh, in a little bit. Um, let me take this on then uh, to, of course, uh, the next goal. Uh, don't forget to leave a like on the video if you haven't done so already. Don't forget to subscribe to the channel if you are new. It really, really does help. Um, really, really appreciate the love and support. If you're listening on audio as well, please do leave us a review, guys. Uh, that really, really helps. If you've got questions, because I can see a few questions coming through, just keep hold of them and we'll do those in a little bit. Um, I don't want them to get lost in the chat. But again, you know, we talk a lot, don't we, about Arsenal occupying defenders, Arsenal wanting to get bodies forward and Arsenal putting players in the right spaces to occupy people when they're in attacking phases of play. Now, I want to have a look at the goal, uh, the Bukayo Saka goal. In fact, before we do that, let's have a look at the Kai Havertz, the Kai Havertz chance um, that Arsenal created here. 
Uh, let me uh, bring it up on the screen for you. So this is Bukayo Saka who's picked up the ball and is carrying it forward, makes his way into the Newcastle United half. He's got Martinelli to his left. He's got Declan Rice busting a gut to get up alongside him. Martin Odegaard has put himself in that right-sided channel um, because, of course, Bukayo Saka is uh, is in field at the moment. But even down at the bottom of your screens, look at Jakub Kivio. Look at Jakub Kivio. This guy was a centre-back a few weeks ago. Look at him. He's switched on. This is what confidence can do for you. He's aggressive. He's he's bursting down the left-hand side to try and make something happen. Um, and, and as the play develops, whoops, I keep pressing the wrong buttons because I'm trying not to get done by the copyright people. Um, then Martinelli slots it through to Kai Havertz, who really, really ought to score here. Really, really ought to score. Um, Loris Karius commits quite early, actually with regards to, you know, how he's going to try and deal with this situation. Um, and, and I actually think that if Kai Havertz showed a little bit more composure there and and just gives it that split second and watches Loris Karius go down, he can quite comfortably dink this over the top of the goalkeeper. Instead, he tries to slot it past uh, Loris Karius and it just goes wide of the post. And look, people will be critical of Kai Havertz. And I think we saw the best and the worst of Kai Havertz if you, in a weird way in that, you know, his movement is super intelligent. And we saw that again. He timed the run brilliantly. Some of you saying in the chat that he was offside. He wasn't. Um, he, he manages to, and even if the linesman flagged, which I don't know if he did, um, having seen it again, there's no way he was offside. So the VAR would have stepped in there. But, you know, you've seen the clever movement to get himself in that position. But you've seen on this instance, that lack of cutting edge and killer instinct in front of goal, which is the criticism that people have of Kai Havertz. And I think it's a fair one. Um, to be honest with you. Um, then if we take it on uh, to, hold on, let me show you guys here, actually, just back on that point about the offside. Look, it's clearly on there. You can see that the last defender, Fabian Scheer, is playing him onside as Martinelli plays that pass um, with the outside of the boot. But look, again, there are options here for Arsenal. And this is, this is look, there's one, two, three, four, five, six, seven Arsenal players Seven Arsenal players bursting forward when they're 2-0 up to try and make sure that they can put this game to bed. Now, Martinelli's got options here. He he picks the right option in the end because he puts a player through uh, on goal in a central position. You don't get better goal scoring opportunities than that. But he's got Odegaard to the right if he wants to use Havertz as a decoy and play him in. He's got um, Declan Rice coming up on the left-hand side if he needs to delay for any reason or he works it into Declan Rice, Declan Rice will then have Jakob Kivior making the overlapping run. But Kayo Saka's attacking the penalty area from a deeper position because he set up the move to try and get into a position where he could potentially pick up any scraps. There is so much threat. And the way Arsenal work this, the fact that Bukayo Saka comes in off the left-hand side at the very start of this move, he then attracts all of the Newcastle defenders into a very, very tight area. Look at them. You could throw a net over all of them in this scenario and in this situation. And then because he's brought them all in field, that creates the corridors and the channels for those guys uh, to make the runs wide. So if you can't um, slip in Kai Havertz, you can put your foot on the ball and you can use the wide areas and the spaces that you've created uh, in the process of this move. So there's so much to be impressed about when it comes to Arsenal's attacking play. Let's take it on a little bit further. Uh, Alexander Isak had a, a chance in the second half, but I'm not going to bother going over that. Fantastic ball for, to him from Gimaraish, I think it was, and a brilliant bit of skill 
by the way. But again, this is in the build-up now to Bukayo Saka's goal, Arsenal's third goal. Same thing again. Odegaard this time picks up the ball in a central area. And what are Arsenal doing? They're looking to go man-to-man with every single one of that Newcastle United back four. You know, I always talk on this podcast about space in between the lines. And I'm sure a lot of people get irritated by that because I bang on about it so much. When I'm talking about space in between the lines, I'm talking about the space that these four Arsenal players on your screenshot now, Trossard, is it Trossard? I can't remember. Yeah, it must be Trossard by that point in the game. It might not be. Anyway, but I'm talking about these four players. One, two, three, four. In between Newcastle's back line and midfield. That's the space in between the lines that I always talk about. If you can get players into those areas and then you can work the ball into those areas, you're one-on-one with defenders. You're 4v4. That's what you want as attackers. That's the dream. And Martin Odegaard, we know, is more than good enough to work the ball into that area from that type of space. And that's why at times this season, you've seen Odegaard drop a little bit deeper to get on the ball. And then you've seen the left eight, whoever that might be. In this case, it's Declan Rice. Get in with the rest of the attackers to make a four or a five-man line that is looking to hurt the opposition. It's very brave. It's high risk at times, but it's clearly what Arsenal are trying to do. We'll take this on a little bit further. Odegaard plays it into Rice this time. Havertz gets it. And now, have a look at it here. Declan Rice is in space in the middle. You can either try and thread it through to him or you can work it wide. And if there's a cross coming in, he could potentially steal a march on his man. It is Leandro Trossard, by the way, who's come on at this point. He's around the far post, meaning Kieran Trippier can't go inside and help out with the Declan Rice threat because Leandro Trossard is over his shoulder. And eventually we work it out to the right-hand side uh, for Bukayo Saka. And from there on, this is just pure and utter brilliance from Saka. He puts his foot on the ball. He takes on Liveramento. He checks back inside him. And he does what Bukayo Saka does best, which is fire into that bottom corner. Might have taken a slight nick, a slight deflection on its way through, but who cares? Into the bottom corner it goes and essentially is game over. Game over. Arsenal in dreamland. Arsenal absolutely cruising. I'll take it on to the final goal, um, which of course um, was another set piece from Arsenal. Um, And again, you're going to see a kind of similar routine, but a slightly different one because the starting positions are a bit different here. So this time we've not overloaded the far post as much as Declan Rice goes to deliver this. Instead, we've overloaded the front post. So like what you saw earlier in the game for the Gabriel goal, and again, this highlights the variation we have when it comes to set pieces. You saw a cluster of players at the far post that all made a dart across um, into the near post area. And that was what caused... Uh, Newcastle United the problems. This time there's a cluster of players at the near post from a slightly earlier point in the routine. And when the ball comes over, it comes off of uh, Jakob Kivio, who gets a flick on at the near post. Does take a touch, though, I think, off of um, Lewis Miley on its way in. Uh, we'll get a look at that now. Yeah, it just comes off of Miley's shoulder, I think. Um, and and that's what, what beats Carrius in the end. But again, Arsenal causing chaos, causing havoc from set pieces. I know I spent a long time going over the goals, but I really wanted to kind of demonstrate some of those points because a lot of the stuff that we talk about on this podcast, um, half spaces, uh, spaces in between the lines, ghost runs from deep positions, it was on show today. 
yeah, today, I say today, last night, it was on show. And and I think it's really important you highlight it so that when you make those points going forward, they kind of really, uh, really hit home. Look, I thought everybody in Arsenal colours yesterday was superb. Um, but the ones I want to give a special shout out to are Jorginho, who I thought was magnificent. Arsenal's controller in midfield. What a performance. And the most impressive thing about Jorginho's performances of late is that he's not even playing regularly. Like this is a guy who's coming in and out of the side, but picking up at this incredible level and being a real leader and driving force in a side that most people wouldn't put him in if everybody's fit and available. That's what's really, really impressive about this. Some players, they get caught cold when they're not playing regularly. Some players struggle to pick up form um, and maintain it when they're not a regular starter. Jorginho seems to have none of that problem. You know, he seems to be able to just come into the side, do a job. And the, the fact he's doing different jobs shows how intelligent a footballer he is as well. Because against Liverpool, he was playing on the left side of the midfield, protecting the fullback a little bit. And Declan Rice was the sitting player. Yesterday, it was completely different. Jorginho was playing as the more sort of um, defensive-minded one of the two. That took the leash off of Declan Rice at times. And at times, when Arsenal were pressing and in certain game states, he was sitting alongside Rice and they were sitting as a two in the midfield. So the variation to his game is just incredible. And it goes to highlight what an intelligent player he is. It's no surprise to me that when we're at our best tactically, he's in the team. He's one of Mikel Arteta's lieutenants out on the pitch that organises and orchestrates, but then has the technical ability to pick out players in those spaces in between the lines I keep talking about, who has the experience and know-how to put out fires, even if physically he's not the greatest player in the world. I think he's just such a great asset to this squad. When you think that we paid, what, 12 million quid for him, for him it's, it's it's really unbelievable. Um, Kai Havertz, I've talked a lot about his movement in, in the sort of reviewing of the goal, so I'm not going to go back over that too much, but he was magnificent. And Jakub Kivior, just for me, seems to get better and better every week. It was really, really important, guys, to bounce back after the Porto game and prove to everybody that it was just an off night. And we did exactly that. I'm going to run you through a, a few statistics that really kind of jumped out at me in the analysis of last night's game. And then we're going to spend the rest of the show taking your thoughts and questions from the live chat. But we've also got some on X as well. So start, get if you've got questions, if you put questions in earlier and I haven't got to them, please, uh, please do um, chuck them in again and I'll, I'll pick up as many of those as I can. Um, 25 goals in six league games now. Only conceded six shots on target in our last five Premier League games, which is remarkable, really. We're now the first team in Premier League history to score two or more in seven consecutive halves of football. And Arsenal have scored half as many goals in February as Manchester United have in the Premier League all season. How about that? How about that? I'm going to take a really, really short pause. Uh, then I'm going to take some of your questions. We've got a super chat in there as well. Uh, we'll get to all of that right after this. Don't go anywhere. You are listening to the Chronicles of Aguna podcast. Hello, hello, hello. Welcome back to the show. Okay, let's take some of your questions. Let's take uh, some of your thoughts. Dr. Mohamed Saad, uh, thank you so, so much, my friend, uh, for your very, very kind uh, donation uh, to the channel. It is really, really appreciated. He says, that Arsenal performance in the first half was a worldie. We can win against City and Real Madrid with that kind of play that we saw in the first half. When we play like that, I don't think there's anybody that can live with us. And I mean that. It's not being arrogant. It's not being overconfident. It's not being cocky. 
I just think that this team, when it's all clicking, is that damn good. Um, and it feels like it has clicked in recent weeks with the exception of the Porto game. We've been fantastic. And why wouldn't we now, having watched the way we bounced back, have confidence that we can go uh, into that second leg against Porto and turn it around? And you, listen, this is going to be a tough old tight race. And I don't even think we're going to win it. Um, I don't. Genuinely, that's my. If I were a gambling man and I were betting on who's going to win the league now, I wouldn't bet on Arsenal because I don't think that we have the right to be favourites ahead of Manchester City, especially because of the experience and the, the the inevitability about them. Liverpool are going really, really well this season. I don't look at Liverpool's performances though and think that they're as good as maybe the points tally suggests. Now that might be a sign of champions that they're picking up points without really being at their brilliant best a lot of the time. But yeah, that's just kind of where I'm at. But if we keep playing like this and we keep producing and we keep performing and, you know, we show that we go the distance again and we go far in the Champions League, then there's no reason to be really too critical because it would be maintenance, wouldn't it? It would be Arsenal maintaining the level that they were able to get to last season and showing that we are a serious force and we're back. We're back and we're going to keep pushing and we're going to keep fighting and and hopefully eventually that's going to lead to us winning one of the major trophies and, and kind of capping that off. Look how long it took Jurgen Klopp to win the league with Liverpool. Um, you could see for a number of years before they did that they were steadily improving and moving in the right direction. And I don't think their fans were sitting there going, oh my God, we ain't won the league because they were realistic about where they were. That side hadn't won the league in 30 years. We haven't won it in 20 years. We don't have a divine right to win it. Um, but the connection that we feel again, the the mood, the atmosphere, um, the, the kind of the relatability with this team, all of that stuff is so, so important to me. And I feel like it's back and, um, and I'm just loving the ride. I'm loving the journey. Really, really am. Okay. Um, Ron Rogers says only Saka and Trossard have scored more than Havertz. Havertz will probably get as many as Xhaka last year deserves respect. Yeah. And, and people will say like, playing devil's advocate, people will say to that, well, hold on a minute. Granit Xhaka was a midfielder. Well, Kai Havertz has played the majority of this season as a midfielder too. And and I feel like people have not factored that in when judging his outputs earlier in the season. Um, and now that we're seeing him play up front a bit more, um, you know, covering for the problems that Jesus is having at times. And, you know, sometimes that's been Trossard. Sometimes it's even been Nketiah. But, you know, Havertz is overall offering is clearly valued more than what Nketiah could bring to the table. And in certain games, Mikel will pick Havertz over Trossard in that position too. So yeah, really, really important. Uh, let's take this one from uh, Mike, who says, uh, you stressed that you need different players for different games uh, versus Porto. If everybody's fit, who switches in your starting 11 from yesterday? Cheers. This is interesting. Um, it's a tough one. The thing is, away goals are not a factor anymore, right? If we're going to beat FC Porto and, and go through to the next round, we're going to have to score two goals. Regardless of what happens, we have to score two goals. So I would say we go with a more attacking approach because even if we concede one to Porto because of the fact that there's no away goals anymore, we still have to score two. So I would probably go with... Um, I would probably, it's hard. There's a temptation to go with Trossard and Havertz in the same team. But I just think at home, 
when we're looking to pick the lock of low blocks. There's something about having Jorginho in the side that just makes so much sense. To have Jorginho who can unpick a defence from deep, to have Odegaard who can do it from a more advanced position, it's really, really valuable. I actually think that we found the right balance now, maybe inadvertently, but the fact that we've got Kivior at left-back now who can defend rather than spending his time going into midfield. And I know that there are certain games where we've missed Zinchenko and where that's necessary. But having a a, a left-back who is very defensively competent means that you can put more of that ball-progressing burden on a, a midfield player which is, in my mind, how it should be. I think last season it worked really well with Zinchenko because of the element of surprise. You know, people didn't really fancy us at the start of the season. They didn't realise how effective that could be. As time's gone on, people have worked it out. It's now, well, stick your right winger high up the pitch. Take that risk. Take that gamble because you know Zinchenko is going to come inside. And when you win the ball back, then you can hurt them. Actually, now I think that the right way to go is to try and build up through Jorginho and and through Odegaard. And, you know, I I believe that Thomas Partey can progress the ball brilliantly as well. And so when he comes back into the picture, then the conversation slightly changes. But right now, I would pick the team that played last night against Porto. Okay. Um, George says, uh, Havertz came in for Xhaka. He plays a different position. But do you think now, 26 games in, it's an upgrade? Hmm. I don't know if I want to say it's an upgrade because I think they bring very, very different skill sets to the table, but he's certainly more of an attacking asset than Granit Xhaka was. And and I'm not just looking at it through the kind of simple lens of of goal scoring. I'm looking at this through, you know, his movement, the runs that he makes, the impact that he can have on others. I think in that sense, when it comes to their impact in the final third, there's no competition. I think that Kai Havertz is much more impactful. The question was earlier on in the season, you know, has that impacted our defensive balance? And has that led to us having to be a bit more conservative at times and then our football becoming a bit boring? But actually, when you look at how we're playing now, I don't think there was ever um, there was ever a period in which Arsenal were instructing players to be a little bit more negative or a little bit more conservative. And actually what had happened was, People just weren't playing at the level that we know they can. The the intention has always been to attack. The intention has always been to hurt people. And yeah, a bit more control, a bit more balance at certain times is is important. Um, But yeah, I've I've gone around the houses there a bit, George. But to go back to your question, do I think he's been an upgrade? I think he has in an attacking sense, but not in a defensive sense. Um, So yeah. Dr. Mohammed uh, with another super chat. Thank you so much, mate. He says the English media does not give us enough credit for our goal stats without a number nine. Uh, the numbers are just amazing. They are in recent weeks, aren't they? They're, they're just really, really impressive. Um, if I go over to, uh, let's let's have a quick peek at the uh, Premier League table a second. Because Arsenal are in third place at the moment, but we've scored one goal less than Liverpool. We've got three goals more than Manchester City on the same games played. Um, We're the only one of the top three that's won all of our last five games, uh, which is pretty impressive as well. And our goal difference is superior to both Liverpool and Manchester City's. And, you know, this this league title race is going to go right down to the wire, you feel. And something like that could prove significant in the end. So it's important and I don't think it should be undervalued. Um. 
Russ says, do you see a world where we sell Jesus and Zinchenko in the summer? I don't think we'll sell them, but I think we might move to a place where we're not so reliant on them um, just because their injury records um, have been very, very questionable. Um, I think the, the, the thing that I always battle with myself kind of in my mind when I'm talking about Jesus or Zinchenko is this, right? They're a big part of why we took such a big step forward last season. Those two coming in was game-changing in terms of their experience, their know-how, their level, their ability to perform consistently. And it's almost like we've got to the point now where maybe we're moving past them, but I don't think it's because of their quality. I think it's because of their inability to stay fit. And I almost feel it's a bit disrespectful, Not, and I'm not saying you're doing this, Russ, but just genuinely, uh, sorry, generally, I beg your pardon. I just feel it's a bit disrespectful to discard their value to the side. I think there is value there. I just think it's about fitness. And if they can't stay fit, it's great to have them around, but you need to have players that can come in and do those jobs. And I think we're starting to get to a point where we can live without both of them. But to have them available is is obviously huge, given, as I say, that they were massive in our, um, you know, in our kind of step forward last season. Uh, Fuad says, who out of the injured players coming back uh, would you put in the first 11? I'd love Timber to come in at left back because when we were talking about the different teams, Zinchenko playing there and Kivio playing there, I think he's the perfect hybrid between the two of them. Partey would come back into the 11 for most games for me as well because I think he's superb. Um, at the moment, Jesus wouldn't though. Um, at the moment, I'd go with Havertz up top and you know maybe some people would disagree with that, but I think that would be the way to go at the moment. Mike says, Harry, I've been a gooner since the 80s. The football I've seen in the last few weeks is as good as I've ever seen from us. I wouldn't argue with that. wouldn't argue um, with, uh, with with that at all. Uh, who's this guy in the comments that needs to get blocked? Let's block him. Um, unknown. Oh, your call. Anyway, he's gone. Um, yeah, I, I wouldn't agree. I wouldn't disagree with that. I think that the, the free-flowing nature of the football... Uh, some of the moves, the movement, the intensity with which we do it all is just incredible. And then to add the set piece element to it, it's just, it's it's unheard of. Um, certainly since I've been an Arsenal fan, I know people often refer back to the kind of George Graham days and say, you know, we were decent in those scenarios and the whole uh, one nil to the Arsenal thing. I never caught that stuff. I was like coming into football when Arsene Wenger took over. And notoriously under Arsene Wenger, we weren't, particularly in the second part of his tenure, we were actually quite suspect and weak from set pieces. Now we're not only really good when it comes to defending them, but we're really effective when it comes to utilising them as an attacking weapon. So, yeah, I'm really, really, um, really, really pleased with uh, what I've seen and, and the direction in which we're moving. Right, let's go over to X and take a couple of the questions that were uh, sent through last night uh, from there. Hold on a second. Where is it? Where's my tweet? Here we go. Okay. There's a couple of good ones in here. Lots of praise for Jorginho, uh, as you'd expect. Um, Tim Worrell says, can you think of a more dominant half we've played than that first half? The truth is, mate, I, I don't think I can. Um, it was just everything about it was just brilliant, wasn't it? That From start to finish, we were just electric the pace the speed with which we did things was just really really impressive and as i said it reminded me uh of like a a swarm of angry bees being released um to go after someone um 
Arsenal era says, how do we keep the momentum and also avoid fatigue with the number of games coming up? I think in order to, to avoid fatigue, the key here is to get the players back that we have missing. And if we get those guys back and we then have the options, I mean, Mikel Arteta made changes last night, but to have higher level players that you can bring on means that you can make some of those changes from the start of games and that can protect people, can't it? Um, it, it can protect people. Um, Rickstar 180 says, uh, surely Rice and Jorginho have to be the midfield partnership for the majority of the games left this season. We look so much more controlled and better all round with that partnership. Exciting times to be a gunner. If, if that was the midfield every week, I don't think I'd have a problem with it. I do wonder if Jorginho could, could hack it though. I think, although I've talked about how good it is that he can kind of come in and out of the side and still perform at a really high level, I do think there's something in that from Mikel Arteta's side. I do think there's an element of we need to manage his minutes a little bit because of the stage he's at at his career. Um, Anthony says, hi, Harry. Great content. Thank you so much, mate. He says, do you fancy Havertz as the striker next season? And then maybe we could sign an eight, considering how much any striker will go for. Um, it might be something to consider. I know there'll be riots. Um, I know there'll be riots if we don't sign a striker in the summer. Um, I still think we need a specialist striker. I would still go out and try and get one, but to have Havertz as an option there is massive. And then you can start to use Jesus as a wide option. You know, we keep talking loads about how, um, you know, Saka needs a break, Saka needs a breather. Gabriel Jesus, when he played on the right wing, was phenomenal. Um, I think it was against Man City, wasn't it? He was phenomenal that day. And he's proven in his career previously that he can play that role really, really well and really effectively. So if you bring in a striker, there's still plenty of space for Jesus, for Havertz, for for lots of players to get game time. So yeah, I, I would, I, I get what you're saying, but I would still want us to go out and bring in a striker. And I think the majority of people probably feel that way as well. But, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if they go down the route you've suggested. LFC Burger, who's obviously not an Arsenal fan, but wanted to throw one of those uh, questions to try and uh, get a bite out of me, is uh, going to get exactly that. He says, is it a failure if Arsenal finished third with no trophies considering Arsenal finished second last season? It all depends. If Arsenal finish third, one point off the top, two points off the top, then they've actually got closer to winning the title than they did the season before. Um, so... It, it all depends on the context around that. You know, if the league finishes and you've got the winners on 90 points and second on, uh, you know, 89 and third on 88, then they were part of an incredible title race. And unfortunately, they just fell a little bit short. Um, and you won't catch me saying that it's a failure of a season. But obviously, when you finish second and you come close, the next step is is to win. The problem is, and, and I always say this on the pod and, and people often don't like this, but the truth is that progress in anything that you do isn't always isn't always linear. It doesn't always go like that. Sometimes you'll get to a certain point and then you'll stay at that point until you take that next step to the next level. And I think that's what people need to realize. Think about the level of performance we're seeing. Think about how the team's making you feel. All of those things are positive. And trophies are important, of course, and ultimately will be what you're judged on. But there's only a handful of trophies. There's four available um, to us at the start of this season. There was four available in last season, Manchester City won three of those. So, you know, 
it's really, really difficult. It really is. Okay, look, guys, I'm going to leave it there. Um, got a few bits uh, to be cracking on with this Sunday. Promise the lad I'll take him to the park. So better go and do that and make sure that I'm back in time for the League Cup final a little bit later on today, which should be interesting. Like, subscribe. You know the drill by now. Get involved in the comments section as well if you're watching this back on playback. In fact, where are we at on the likes? We've got only 113. Guys, come on. Come on. Um, with the amount of you watching, there's no reason why we shouldn't have 250 likes. So please do leave a like on the video, subscribe, all the rest of it, and I will catch you the next time. Have a great Sunday. Take care and uh, watch the game back. I'm sure you'll enjoy it. All the best. Goodbye.